Hey everyone, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Welcome back to another episode of Faith in Fine Print. This is your host, Nihal Khan. Today we are here in Connecticut at the Farmington Valley American Muslim Center, whom we are very grateful to for them allowing us to utilize their space to interview and speak with Imam Zaid Shakir. Now, this is Imam Zaid's first time on our podcast. So the way we do things, Imam Zaid, is that instead of reading a long bio, which I'm sure you've heard God knows how many times, we provide the narrative to our guests to kind of tell us about themselves, right? And I think uh, it's actually a very weird thing when you hear other people in your presence talking about you, you know, <laughs> when you're right there and you, there's no one that can better, you know, relate that than yourself. So uh, I'd love to uh, hear from you, Imam Zaid Shakir. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. It's, it's a great honor to be on Faith and Fine Print. So we, we pray that Allah Ta'ala blesses the program uh, to be successful in future editions, and may Allah give us tawfiq to convey something meaningfully meaningful uh, today. So yeah, you know, we can narrate ourselves, and we can also abbreviate. So that is uh, a nice feature, being able to kind of introduce yourself. So alhamdulillah, this is Imam Zayd Shakir. I converted to Islam in 1977 way back in the day, before you were even born. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's been a blessing. I, I, I consider that the best decision I ever made. And uh, if, if my wife gets mad at me saying that, then, uh, I, 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 then I really know it's the best decision I ever made. So When your wife gets mad? Or me saying it's the best decision. Oh, okay, okay. If she says marrying me was the best decision, <laughs> okay, I know that becoming Muslim was the best decision. I'm doing that. But anyway, leaving all jokes aside, uh, you know, it was powerful. I was just, uh, yesterday we saw this. I, I saw for the first time this report that Muslims are twice as likely as any other faith, members of any other faith group to commit suicide and... Um, mm, I saw that study, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it really is sad in me because uh, definitely if anyone is suffering from mental health, there's no shame, there's no stigma. Uh, those who are, are looked upon as leaders in the community should encourage them to seek help. Uh, you know, there's no question about that. But, but what really saddened me was just... Uh, the thought that generally speaking, not in any specific case, uh, is compared to other communities, is Islam working in terms of really providing that inner peace, that solace? Uh, one of the drivers, Islamophobia of, of this, that to really see the world for what it is. You know, the world is a nasty place. Not, not as nasty as Thomas Hobbes described it, but, you know, it can be a very difficult place. And one of the things that Islam does is equips you to deal with that nastiness mm -hmm. in ways that allow you to smile, that allow you to see the brighter side of things, that allows you to be uh, optimistic. You know, our Prophet ﷺ, he was optimistic. He wasn't foolishly hopeless, but he was very mutafail. Uh, Mm -hmm. very optimistic 
uh, about things. You know, if the kayama comes and you have a seedling in your hand, then plant it, you know. Because maybe Allah will suspend things and you'll get to eat that fruit and bask under that shade, enjoy that shade. So we're, we're an optimistic, proactive people. Uh, but I say that to say this. Uh, when I came, became a Muslim, it saved my life. Mm -hmm. And so it was such a powerful experience. I couldn't even talk about it for like a couple of years. So we have testimony day. The new converts are going to talk about it. Say, so, you know, I, could, I converted and <laughs> I can't talk about it. It's too powerful. And seriously, it took me a couple years to just be able to talk about converting to Islam and becoming a Muslim because it, it had such a positive and life-changing in a positive way impact on my life. <clears throat> so uh, alhamdulillah, I became Muslim and I, I, I was in the military at the time in Louisiana, uh, there was no internet, there was no evil empire, Amazon, <laughs> and there was no way to get any Islamic books. So I converted probably in the late spring of 1977. And I had to wait until I could go on leave in uh, December around Christmas, New Year break, drove to... Uh, New York City, and my 19 with my wife, my new wife, because like, like it was my girlfriend. And when I took Shahada, they said, like, brother, you know, you can't, you know, have girlfriends in Islam. You got to either marry her or get rid of her. I said, man, that's a no brainer. So I just have to marry her. <laughs> and so we drove in my 1971 Toyota Corolla. The 1971 Toyota was not the 2021 Toyota. Which is basically a Mercedes now. It's a Mercedes. <laughs> it wasn't a Mercedes then. The thing broke down in Virginia. Uh, it was an interesting journey. But we, had, in any case, we had to ride, drive from Louisiana to uh, New York City to the Islamic Center on Riverside Avenue to buy some Islamic books. Alhamdulillah, I bought them and I... I just started reading, reading, reading all these books, cover to cover, my Yusuf Islam, Yusuf Ali, rather, Quran translation and commentary. I read all the notes and the appendices and uh, Sahih Muslim, uh, the Siddiqui translation, three or four volumes. I read it cover to cover, all of the notes, everything. So, alhamdulillah, it, it was a great blessing. We had the little Mauduti pamphlets, what is Islam, and all of these, and just just eating those. So, you know, it was, it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful experience. And uh, from there, uh, I got out of the Air Force, uh, went to uh, Washington, D.C., and did my, finished my undergrad. I started one year at Central Connecticut State. Uh, at that time, it was State College. State University. I did a year there. Then my mother passed away in the spring semester, and so I didn't know what to do. So I said, I have to put a roof over my head. I want to continue my education. So this was the, the post-Vietnam era. So I said, the only way I could do that is I'll go in the military. I'll get, they'll pay for the classes. I'll get the GI Bill when I get out. And that's pretty much what happened. But on the way, I went to Turkey, 
Uh, my last, because I wanted to get out. When I got in, I wasn't a Muslim. When I converted, so this is 1976 when I first went in. So we're four years from the Muhammad Ali Supreme Court vindication of his uh, uh, conscientious objector status. I said, oh, we can't be in the military. Look at Ali. He's a Muslim, and he got granted uh, immunity from service. So I went, and they said, we're not in a war now. So how could you object to war when we're not fighting anybody? And so I said, okay, then send me to a Muslim country. So they sent me to Turkey. They probably said, let's send him before he changed his mind, because no one wanted to go to any Muslim country. Mm. Even Turkey, with its secular, secular system, still... You can't chase the girls. You can't have wild parties. You can't do these things that you could do in Thailand or Japan or Philippines or these other places. And so they sent me immediately. And while there, I met, I met amazing Muslims. Uh, most of them were uh, connected with, at that time, Urbakan, uh, Najmuddin Urbakan's party. It was called the Mili Salamat. Mili Salamat Partisi. And so wonderful Muslims, very active. We would go to Friday, Thursday night, Dhikr. They Most of them were affiliated with the Naqshibani Tariqah. And it was it was an amazing. I made Hajj on the bus and by car. Wow. You can still do that by foot. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, mashallah, you know, it was quite an adventure. I went all over Turkey, archaeological sites, famous masjids, three or four trip, trips to Istanbul. Uh, and so then I got out. When I got out, I went to D.C. and uh, finished my undergrad. New Jersey, Rutgers, did graduate master's there, and then returned to Connecticut. We started Masjid al-Islam in New Haven, <clears throat> and uh, we're, we're there rabble-rousing. For several years, I taught uh, political science at uh, Southern Connecticut State University. I became the, the first Muslim chaplain at Yale. At that point, it was a voluntary position. Uh, and then uh, moved to, uh, to uh, California. Stopped in Egypt along the way. I studied Arabic. And eventually ended up in California working with the Zaytuna College. How that happened, I don't know. Because I was actually on my way to Texas and I uh, was going to work with Dr. Yusuf Kavachi. Oh, okay. And the next thing I know, I'm in California. Like, mashallah. <laughs> so, uh, in a nutshell, and uh, so now I'm kind of back and forth between California. Right now, the pandemic, I've been here in Connecticut. There's no online, there are no students on campus. It, it didn't make sense to go back. But I've got wrapped up with family, and so it's it's hard to go back now. But we'll see. Duty calls. We'll see what happens. Alhamdulillah. You know, that's, um, there, there's obviously stories that you yourself have, listen to yourself have heard from so many different people especially working with the community you know from you know the late 70s <clears throat> into the 80s and 90s and up until now um and a lot has happened so like one person that you brought up was muhammad ali the champ right you know everyone 
Uh, I remember during that era, you know, he and, and the reason Imam Zaid I was hoping to speak to you is because I feel like there is a generation of young Muslims who actually are not aware of what our past looked like in within the United States. Um, but when you in I think 2016 was it when Muhammad Ali passed passed away, um, you know they f- flew him to Kentucky and uh, you know to Louisville, and it was yourself, a bunch of other people, Sheikh Hamza, Will Smith, you know the Hussein brothers. That it, it became an image that w- you know went all over, and obviously you had you had led the Janaza, you know, and, and many people say like we saw Imam Zaid lead the Janaza, but what was Imam Zaid's reflections from incidents of that nature? Like, what does it mean to, you know, lose a symbol like Muhammad Ali, especially when he was Muslim, when it wasn't, uh, I'd like to say, cool to be Muslim? Yeah, <clears throat> it, it wasn't. And I think when you talk about a kind of how the tr- community has evolved, I think 9-11 was kind of a demarcation where, any illusions of sort of easy acceptability were dispelled. And so you go back to the 60s where the likes of Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X, Hajj Malik, Shahbaz, where they, they, their lives are in constant danger. You know, a lot of people, of course, as particularly in the African-American community, but even globally, could definitely identify with them. But there were a whole lot of people who were angered uh, by what they were saying, what they were doing, the stances that they took. And they, they, impl- they embodied courage. And they, they, they didn't allow the threat of death to deter them from really representing Islam in direct and indirect ways uh, that a lesser lesser men would have easily been deterred, and uh, I, I I remember, and I'm sure you've heard when Muhammad Ali, uh, rahimahullah, said, you know, you could put me in front of a firing squad, and I'm not going to denounce the teachings of Islam. So he's saying this at the height of racial tension in this country, the height of the the white backlash, if you will, and uh, he meant it. And people knew he meant it on all sides. And Malcolm X, uh, you know, uh, until our people learn to, to pay the price of freedom, we're all we're going to be running around here like 21st century st- slaves. Uh, what price is that? Uh, Mr. X... The price of freedom is death. And so that mentality really inspired a lot of people to stand up, represent the religion, be very uh, vocal about it, be very proud of it, have a a, a, sort of uh, a radical militant edge. And to a certain extent, that's been lost, particularly after 9-11, you know, Oh, people think we're just a bunch of terrorists who wants to listen to me and becoming very apologetic, uh, thinking no one really wants to listen to Muslims. Uh, why should we make dawah? Who wants to listen to us? And not realizing probably there's a greater need now than there was then. 
because the, the forces of dehumanization in our society are much stronger now than they were then. The forces of alienation, the forces that keep people from really uh, getting in contact with their humanity, everything from social media, virtual reality, things that literally move us away from reality are so much stronger now. There's, if there's, I don't know if there's ever been a greater need for a force like Islam that's just rooted in truth, rooted in reality. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan wa Show us the truth as the truth and bless us to follow it. In the days of fake news, in the days of, you know, uh, virtual impersonations of people, in the face of um, mass deception, uh, vicious propaganda, identifying the truth and really rooting oneself in truth, it's probably never been, it's probably never been more difficult. And there's never been a force in human history that can root a human being in truth like Islam. And I think that's, that's indisputable. I think it also comes back to this. I, I, you know, I think I was talking to someone about this, but I feel like a lot of young people who are now growing up, and because of all these forces that exist, people don't truly believe in their faith. If they are holding on to it, they're holding on to it because it's just a cultural legacy that they're holding on to. And now, um, this may be a... a or an, an intellectual construct. Yeah, exactly. Right, And, and this goes back to my, my other point. I feel like when I speak to a lot of young people, um, or even people who are older who have not really had an engagement with their faith beyond a, a college MSA experience they don't find the relevance to keep it anymore, number one. And then number two, on top of that, you do find people who I think they, you know, everyone is chasing this whole like representation thing, which this is an unpopular opinion. Representation is fine and dandy, but it's always at the expense of what it is that your actual tradition, um, you know, represents. And you're pushing away the inner meaning of that. And, uh, you know, something like Talal Asad, he'll showcase like how, you can fit a secular model of something into the shell of religion, which is now what's happening, right? So people, number one, don't actually believe in their own tradition. Or if they do, they've um, completely relegated it to some non-religious output. And then number two is that um, it's just becoming utilitarian. Yeah, and then that's really dangerous because when religion becomes utilitarian, as soon as you find something you think, is more efficacious in terms of achieving the goals you set before yourself, you're going to abandon religion. And that that was one of the major critiques that Ulum al-Azhar had against Muhammad Abdu and, uh, and uh, uh, Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, that the effort at decolonization, uh, freeing the Arab world and the wider Islamic world from the effects of European hegemony, Islam was instrumentalized and presented in a very utilitarian way. And if Arab nationalism or some other force became more effective, people would abandon Islam and go to those forces. And to a certain extent, that's exactly what happened to large swaths yeah. of the Muslim world. I think also, it also goes to show um, there's a, you know, a book by Muhammad Qasim Zaman, who's a professor at Princeton, right. Right, the Ulama in Contemporary Islam. 
And the thesis that he examines is how scholarship within Islam has always remained rigidly difficult to change because of the fact that we're living in a world that wants everyone to conform to a certain standard. So the moment you are being told that that's not the standard that is going to be conformed to, that is looked at with an eye of skepticism. You know, those people are looked at with an eye of skepticism. And it just goes to show that how is it that we are reframing our faith in this world today? Yeah. May Allah help us. Yeah. But I think figures like Muhammad Ali, who were authentic, who had the ability to represent Islam definitely in different ways. So the Ali of the late 1960s is not the Ali, even, even of the mid 70s, the early 70s. And the early 70s, Ali is in the Ali of the late, late 70s. And the, the pre-Parkinson uh, Ali is not the post-Parkinson Ali. So, but in every phase of his life, he represented the religion in a way that was authentic and, and in a way that expanded his appeal. So it's, he, he had an amazing life. He did. And I think one thing that we forget is that you're showing the different layers of him, even with Malcolm X, right? If I'm correct, he himself was Muslim for like a year, right? At least after Hajj, right? Um, give or take. And there were levels even with him where he went through these evolutions of where he was not the same person in each city the, versus Boston versus Detroit versus, um, I think, Omaha, was it? Nebraska? Yeah, early on. Yeah, you know, you know, and, and you see the different parts of him there within um, his, his autobiography. But I think that's where we need to understand how that faith also transfers in those phases of human um development of personality absolutely and that that's the foundation like these were men of faith even even before they were muslim even before they were involved with the nation of islam they were they were men of deep faith and god was always a factor in their lives yeah i wanted to actually talk about something else your autobiography scattered pictures um i think uh you know i had read it a very long time ago um, actually, now that I think about it, I had read it when it first came out, I think 16 years ago, was it or so? Something like yeah. that. <laughs> um, <laughs> back had, in the day. Back in the day. Um, but I, I was reflecting on it because I picked it up recently and, um, I had read it as a, I don't know, 14, 13, 15 year old or something like that. And I opened it up again, maybe a few weeks ago. And I realized a lot of the issues that you had written about, um, you know, Islam and nationalism, constructing our own Muslim identities. A lot of those topics are still relevant today or, you know, uh, living Islam in a post 9-11 world. You know, that has, I guess, changed, especially in 2016 with, um, you know, Donald Trump's election and whatnot. And it seems like to some degree things have become more exacerbated. Um, if there were things that you could add to that today, I guess, um, what areas do you think that the community of Muslims in America right now are not really talking to or about and need to bring into conversation? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question and observation. I think it's critically important for us as a community to be Muslim first because everything else uh, is sort of 
built on the foundation of Islam. And to the extent that our Islam is strong, that we understand the religion in a proper way, that we don't see it as uh, something utilitarian. We don't see it as something that is specifically uh, germane to our situation. There are definitely unique uh, things about our situation that have uh, that Islam is applicable in unique ways, but the foundation never changes. And I think we have to really hold on to the foundation, build our affair, our affair on the foundation. Otherwise, we have a house that's built on, on sand. And as soon as the waves start coming in, that house is going to just collapse or just be swept away by the waves. And I think we, we see that to a certain extent in the how easily large numbers of, of people are just leaving Islam. It's like, what, what, what is your foundation that you could read a book or go to a philosophy class and then your dean is shaken? It, there's no real foundation. I, I tell people, I, I rarely encounter someone, some parents say, oh, talk to my son, my daughter. They think they're not Muslim anymore. That has defended their faith. So that, for example, they'll say, you know, oh, I read Dawkins, the God delusion, and it really messed my head up. And so I asked, did you read David Berlinski's The Devil's Delusion, a direct atheism and its scientific pretensions, a direct response to Dawkins? No. Did you read John Lennox, uh, God's Undertaker? Has science buried religion? A direct response to Dawkins? No. Did you read William Lane Craig's Kalam Cosmological Argument, a really traditional argument enhanced in more modern language, uh, arguing for the existence of... No, 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 no. That's how cheap your religion was. You, you're not going to even make an effort to refute whatever's caused you so, so much confusion. I would personally, I'd be in the library for the next year or two. Like, man, no, there has to be a response to this. You know, this is too precious not to defend. And I think the fact that you see that happening in so many instances is indicative of just the the foundation isn't there. So I think a foundation in Akita, not, not in a kind of, Overly formalistic checklist, you know, uh, but an internalized, deeply rooted understanding of fundamental theological concepts that are rooted in our heart and that, that are very difficult to extract, to, to get out, because they're wrapped up in our hearts, which the meaning, Yani. They're just totally tied up with our hearts, and you're not going to get that out easily. So I think just getting back to basics in terms of both theology and in terms of law and practice, that certain things are have traditionally been accepted as valid Islamic practices. Certain things have been uh, accepted as sinful, certain behaviors 
And to when those things are easily dismissed, even things there's a things that non-Muslims know, and then they uh, become questionable and then debatable and then easily discarded, and then people still think they're they're solid Muslims. I think all of that is, is indicative of the need to really get back to basis, basics, build a solid foundation and then began to attempt to engage the modern world. I think this, that's, to me, that's something that absolutely is, is um, starting to slip, and we have to, we have to arrest that slippage and re-fortify re just the basic fundamental understandings of, of the religion and what it means to be Muslim. Like, you know, you have your way, I have mine. And now people hesitate to say that. There are Muslims, if you, are, if you just said, you know, uh, Halloween involves a lot of pagan practices that are un-Islamic, you know, like, oh, that's hate speech, brother. <laughs> Muslims, you know, that's hate speech. You, you really shouldn't be come down so hard on the pagans. There's good aspects of paganism. Yeah. Did I shut off? I shut off. Okay, just restart. Yeah. I'm going to leave it recorded. Yeah, Michelle, we can just edit it. No, it's okay. What shut off? This camera? Yeah, yeah. Just have to restart, redo it, because I think it hit the 30 minute mark. So, yeah. Okay. You good? Okay. Okay. And is it recording still there? Okay, good. So. The those are actually very excellent points. I was going to mention that um, uh, I think our community has not been really taught to engage intellectually and logically with their faith. I think often, um, and this comes down to a communal issue. On one end, you have young people that may go to Sunday school where they'll, they'll learn their faith. And Sunday school is great and everything, but at the same time, um, you know, they're being taught platitudes at the end of the day you're being taught that islam is the solution islam is this islam is that but you're not actually being taught to engage with your text you're not being taught to um really grapple with assumptions that we hold so we young people that are growing up in a modern world right you're growing up in a um world that tells you that certain things are just assumed as fact right. you're not going to question that but you're going to question the underlying assumptions of your own faith so you won't question ideas of materialism you won't question ideas that um you know of science that may have been taught to you as an assumption but is actually not right you, right. you mentioned the cosmological argument or right? like the kalam cosmological argument not to you know uh burden anybody with a bunch of big words, but it's the idea of how do you prove God's existence from just looking at the cosmos, logically speaking, right? Like, how do you do that without having to engage in all these different uh, loop, you know, these, uh, you know, logical hula hoops at the end of the day to come to a conclusion? But actually, what are the, just as, like, fine, you, you, you want to question Islam's assumptions, there's nothing wrong with that, but also question the assumptions that you are measuring your faith up against. Right. No, I think a lot of people really... Um, bought into the materialistic worldview and paradigm so that the very uh, premises that underlie the 
assumptions you would question emanate from uh, taking as axiomatic just a lot of foundational uh, ideas in that are rooted in materialism and then projecting onto uh, the spiritual reality those materialistic uh, axio axioms or premises and, and not seeing that what's valid over here isn't valid over there. And so we'll say, oh, the Big Bang started it all. And so it's axiomatic that stuff was always there. And never stopping the question, well, well where did that dense, deep, intensely hot stuff that blew up, and the, where did that come from? Where everything we know, every cause we know has an effect. Not to go into the Kalam cosmological <laughs> argument, but, you know, you know, where did it come from? So tell me. So don't, don't put me as a Muslim on the spot and, and, and just saying, uh, prove God. No, you prove where this came from. And based on your own, your own premises. You know, and I think that's where people struggle with. You why, did, yeah. why did it blow up? It's axiomatic. We don't know of anything that blows up without some either internal laws that were created by some external force or by an external action. Like the Big Bang, this mic would never make a noise unless I hit it. It's just there. So there's your Big Bang stuff. Uh, what, what disrupted this equilibrium? So it's axiomatic. I asked one of the greatest uh, uh, universe origin scholars on earth about that. And he, he said that, you know, there's, there's no good answer. And then, then oh, okay, everything that blows up is just randomly, we blow up a hundred haystacks, they're all going to have different debris fields. And I said, how could this thing blow up and then it result in all of this order? It's not random. It's axiomatic. And he said this one, they, they have uh, theories, but it, it leads back to the same dilemma for the materialists. And the, the theories are there are certain laws and principles that dictated it would form all of this order, but you're back to the uh, square one because who established and, and set those principles? They just didn't set themselves. And so you're back to square one. But you'll find many Muslims that won't even ask those basic fundamental questions. As you said, they're just logical. The logical questions is accepted axiomatically. That's how it is. And now we'll proceed from here or proceed from here. No, I don't accept it. I want an explanation. And then we'll proceed from that explanation. And for me, that when I converted, that was that was I didn't know at the time, but that was that's what led me to. I, I went through an atheistic phase, a Marxist phase, and this is all uh, dialectical uh, materialism, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, etc. And Allahumma uh, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. 
I, I got a, a, one of those pamphlets, those little Christian cartoon books. And uh, I forget how I got it. But the, the author was just arguing for the existence of God, not Jesus loves you and accept Jesus and be saved. And the three questions were, if you go back to the beginning of the universe, to nothing, how did something appear from nothing? And he said, when, if you had a vacuum and you had teams of scientists, sciences, and their, their, their mission was to make something appear in that vacuum without them introducing something, they couldn't do it by design. They couldn't do it with, by intention. What are the chances of it happening accidentally? So there has to be a creator who creates something from nothing, Allah. Then, all right, let's say for the sake of argument, you, you have this thing. Just poop, it, it appears. And it's the basic inorganic matter. How does it take on the properties of life? So you, you have to have a life giver, Allah. And then it starts is living now and starts reproducing. How does it evolve into all of this? Without a mudabbir, musawwir, Allah, someone to arrange it, organize it, give it form and order and shape, Allah. So when when that I realized that I said there has to be a God. There has to be a God, and I I asked my Marxist comrades like you know where did the first thesis came from? If we just take this dialectical historical material, however you want to formulated where did the first thesis come from no answer so i said allah i didn't say allah i didn't know about islam yet i said god it has to be a god and then started the search that culminated in islam mm -hmm. so i have two questions number one well, one is a question the other one is a uh is more of an opener um you know you see today a lot of muslims either you know they're, they're looking for what a <clears throat> um uh, and a Muslim theology within America looks like, right? So I think one of the issues or the tensions that exists is you have groups of Muslims, probably the majority of them kind of leaning more uh, left where it's like, okay, we should align ourselves with the Democratic Party. And then on the other end, you have Muslims that are leaning more right, right? You have people that, uh, you know, want to support more Republican ideas, but the truth of it that nobody seems to want to talk about is that as a Muslim who is rooted in his or her theology, you can't completely find what you're looking for on either side, right? right? So Absolutely. it becomes a, a theology of political expediency. That's all it is. Right. So for number one is like, what should Muslims be working towards in this country when it comes to building an honest um uh, political theology or whatever you want to call it that can actually realistically engage with the community. And number two, you mentioned uh, the first thesis, if you can just kind of mention what that is in re re you know, a reference to, for those who may not know. Okay. So to take the first, uh, we, we, what we should be looking for Socio-politically, as you say, you know, the the right has family values, certain cultural values that a sincere Muslim would readily identify with. 
But then it has the racism, it has the war. And people say, oh, Trump was going to end the wars. But look at the military budgets and their expansion. Trump changed the nature of war, which was, it was moving in that direction anyway, which is no troops, remote warfare by robots. Trump greatly expanded the use of drones, drone strikes, uh, creating mechanized land-based robots. All of that stuff was expanded under Trump, and the, the military budgets were uh, significantly expanded under Trump. So this whole idea that Trump is anti-war and the Republicans are anti-war is, is ridiculous. And so you get that with the Republicans. So yeah, we like the family values. We like the advocacy for religion. But we don't like the racism and the warmongering. And the left wing, we, we, like, some, we like the climate uh, policies, even though those are starting to be attacked and criticized. Michael Moore's new film with uh, the guy Gibbs, Planet of the Humans, really questions a lot of the underlying uh, assumptions that are rooted in green energy and clean energy. Be that as it may, at least there's an, an effort to uh, consider the future of the planet. We like that. Muslims like that, and Muslim like Muslims like the advocacy for the poor, and the downtrodden. But we also believe firmly in free enterprise. We're not socialist. We believe in private property and free enterprise and personal initiative, uh, and so and we we don't like the values terms of uh, gender and sexual issues. Well, we, we used to not like the, the values. And so you get in this dilemma. So what are we looking for? We're, we're looking for Malcolm. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for this socially conservative, politically progressive Muslim. So Malcolm today would be pillared. You know, he'd be attacked for his stances on just family a woman's role in the family, the very traditional conservative values. And, but Malcolm will be embraced for his anti-war position. Malcolm will be embraced for his uh, pro-justice positions. Malcolm would be embraced for his solid, firm commitment to the uplift and liberation of the African-American community. And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for Malcolm. And so I think when enough of us become Malcolms to the extent we're, we're able to uh, walk in those giant footprints, we'll, we'll see some really positive changes that I think a lot of people outside of the Muslim community will welcome. Because I think there are a lot of people out there that, you know, do I have to support bathroom bills to do something positive for the, for, for the climate? And the first thesis is, I think, if 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 we're looking materially, it, it's going back to that that stuff that began the evolution of physical creations. It's a, there's a thesis, and then it has contradictions embedded in it that lead to an antithesis, and then that resolving 
those contradictions results in a synthesis that's a little better and this process moves history or a Hegel that was spiritual and Marx made it material and then it uh, or if we look at human history is, is looking for that ideal state that this dialectical process so it begins with this the slaves and the serfs and then the 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 slaves and serfs the the lord the slaves and owners the lords and the serfs the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and then it culminates when all the the social and political contradictions are resolved it results in the classless state which which is a dream of course this ideology ideology does not conform to reality Mm-hmm. But in those realms, I think that's what yeah. that first thesis now, is. Now, expanding on what we just spoke about, what's the way, I guess, in your view, from the years that you've seen Muslims engage with the political process, right? Um, I, I personally see that often we become very happy when a Muslim gets elected into office, be it at a um, at a national level or at a local level. We become very happy and um, there is what I would term a facade of success where, yes, you do have representation. Yes, that's important. And that is perhaps a point to celebrate. But now looking forward 100 years, 200 years after we have departed, like what is the legacy that we are leaving? And specifically, um, what political legacy are we leaving? And political in the sense that what difference are we making at a larger level while still being rooted in our values like what should be that process should it be just engaging and seeing what comes out from that engagement or is it taking a step back and reassessing like where do we do i, I don't think you have to look out 200 years to see the flaws and a lot of what's happening contemporarily i think you 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 could look at the next election cycle and uh, just see that Islamic values in many instances aren't being representative, represented rather. You know, when when our Muslim representatives are sponsoring transvestite parties, or Muslim representatives saying my Allah is a she, or Muslim representatives are calling Trump an MFR on day one, you know. It, it to me it just it it just becomes uh, a circus, and we 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 get happy because they're temporary. They're, they're, there's the illusion of victories in some areas. So, alhamdulillah, uh, the Palestinian uh, issue uh, gets championed to a certain extent. But on the ground, what has changed? If anything, the situation is worse today than it was when we got our pro-Palestinian Muslim representatives. And so it's not to belittle their courage and the work that they've done, but it's just to question the efficacy of it and to question, was it worth the compromises in terms of our religion and authentically representing our religion? Was it worth those compromises to get what we got? And I, I would argue this it's not. And the this story of Ibn Umar and uh, Abdullah uh, bin Azu, uh, uh, Abdullah bin Zubair. Uh, is Abdullah bin Zubair? 
In any case, the, the famous story with the sheep, he's testing him. Let me have a sheep. They're not my sheep. He's a young uh, lad guarding the sheep. They're not my sheep. Well, your owner won't know. Allah. Allah will know if I were to give you a sheep that I don't own. Allah. And, and it's related. Ibn Umar was just, Allah. Where's Allah? Where's Allah? And so, Allah. you know, where, where is Allah in all of this? Where is the fear of Allah? Where, where is the recognition of the sanctity of Allah's, Tyler's religion and, and all of this? So we're just uncritically pushed uh, by the leadership of the community into accepting things that we should be severely questioning. And where's Allah? And so I think if we think that by making compromises in, in terms of misrepresenting fundamental teachings in our religion, belittling them, dismissing them altogether, that we're going to have tawfiq from Allah. Like Allah is the, the active force in history, not a Marxist uh, dialectical materialism, not, not a... a a, an, an atheistic world where it's just uh, material forces and processes at work or the social laws that have been identified by atheist people or people with no religious foundation whatsoever. That's what moves the world. We're deluding. Allah Ta'ala is the active agent in creation. And if we think that we can do things that are displeasing to Allah Ta'ala in the name of what we determine to be pleasing to Allah, then I think we're deceiving ourselves and we're, we're not going to get what we think we should have. It's just not going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, if we go back to that foundation, you'll see people leaving Islam left and right. Because we did everything and we struggled and we screamed and yelled and we protested and sac and it didn't happen. If ain't no law. You have nothing to do with the outcome of this affair. It's a law. And we have to understand that. Yeah, we work hard as hard as we can. But after that, we depute the outcome to Allah Ta'ala. And we work for things that are pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, Almighty, Almighty God. So, may Allah give us tawfiq. You know, it's, it's not easy. But I think these are the kinds of conversations we have to have. And not only amongst ourselves, the, the so-called religious, religiously committed, but with our politicians, with our representatives. And that's, that's, that's an amanah. And, and I think um, that what it comes down to is potentially we're creating a Allahless Islam, and I think that's what it is, right? You you have these reform movements, right? That these reform movements try to um, do what exactly? What they try to do is um, they are gutting God out of the equation. Yeah. Right? Absolutely, I, I think that's illustrated by so many Muslims accepting this idea of social justice. It used to be just plain justice. Now it's just social justice. And 
to me, and most we have social justice in Islam, but it's subordinate to justice to our souls. And justice with Allah. In the shirka la vulmun azim. And so when we eliminate justice in our relationship with Allah Ta'ala, and we eliminate justice in our relationship with our soul, we secularized it, and all we're left with is social justice. And because we've secularized it, things that would be unacceptable in our relationship with Allah and our relationship with our soul become acceptable. Because if you eliminate Allah, then we don't have to worry about sinful actions or policies. And I think that's where, if we're able to kind of have that discussion, be real with ourselves, but not understand our faith, then I guess that's where we'll begin to lose the point because of the fact that Unfortunately, we don't know our faith. It comes down to that. Um, I actually was taking a class recently with Sheikh uh, Hamza Karamadi. It's called Why Islam is True. And it basically interrogates a lot of these assumptions that we may have. Um, But the most difficult part is that, yes, we can reaffirm Islam's truth through understanding the world. But at the same time, it doesn't remove one from understanding their own faith and seeing where things go from there. So uh, the last question that I have uh, for you, Mam Zaid, is um, right now, what are some of the things that you're working on or things that you would hope to see materialize in the next few years of your life? And um, where are your, where is your time and effort being put into right now? Uh, right now it's being put in, in, into manna. Oh, yes. I, I want to actually ask you about manna. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're working to really get it established, get it on its feet. But ultimately, I think I have to return to uh, pre-manna, which is really trying to clear the plate. To uh, There's two or three books I really want to work on. And uh, also just review my my religious teachings because... You know, review Quran has to be reviewed, or you end up like the proverbial man. Proverbial, I emphasize because I don't know if it's a true per- person, a- an actual person who memorized the entire Quran in Ramadan and then forgot it in Shawwal because he never reviewed it. Or, so I think those are my priorities review and, and then try to move ahead if Allah gives me enough time. And just my own religious studies, I'm, I want to write uh, an, an autobiography, like the scattered pictures, the first chapter is just kind of an outline, but to really present a full-blown, thoroughly researched. I meet people all the time. Remember when we did A, B, C, and D? We did? <laughs> I was? SubhanAllah. And so I realized before people start leaving, it's imperative to like go and talk to people who were there during these various stages of my life to really get down things that I've forgotten about or details that are fuzzy and and then write a, a really legitimate autobiography. That's one. One, 
is uh, a, a work addressing some of these issues that we've been talking about in, in ways that can really uh, present a, a positive way to critique them without, without alienating people who might be wedded to the ideas you're critiquing, but also present uh, a, a positive Islamic path or not a the positive Islamic path to the best of my ability, not to say I can capture the path perfectly. And then work with uh, some some of the students that we're working with so they can get the get the torch and continue into the cave, deeper into the cave. And out of the lizard hole. Yeah, and find the way out of the lizard hole, if you will, yeah. So those are the three things. That's awesome, alhamdulillah. And if people want to interact with you, connect with you, how can they do that? Allahumma <laughs> salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. I know it's going to be uh, the, the coming phase, if Allah gives me time here on this planet, is going to be a lot more. Is, is by nature and necessity, I have to be a lot more inaccessible. But... You know, I, I you know, I, I'll be around. Yeah. I'll be at some masjid. I have to pray. Yeah. And give an occasional khutbah. So yeah. Inshallah. You can you can also read they can also reach out to you through your uh, Imam Zaid Shakir Twitter page. Somebody somewhere will will you know yeah. will find a way. You'll find a way. We believe in you. Yeah, people will find <laughs> a way. We're 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 very creative and genius and, and we're we're extremely uh, our survival adaptability. Yes. As humans, we're very adaptable. So we adapt to different situations. Hopefully, I'll adapt to different situations and people will adapt to that. Yeah. The only thing uh, worrisome about our adaptability is that it's only arrived by the, the rat and the cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a little worrisome. Like yeah. we're in that company. But alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala has really blessed us. Yeah, alhamdulillah. And um, with that, everyone, that's uh, that's Imam Zaid Shakir for you all. Um, if you want, check him out online on, you know, wherever you can look him up. Check out his publications. Check out his scattered pictures. Um, I had one last question. Um, how would you... And I have one last comment. Oh, okay, alhamdulillah. After the answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, between scattered pictures and the work that you want to work on now, uh, what are some of the things that you wanted to incorporate into it? I think just uh, that was kind of early 2000s and a lot has changed since then. So I think just, I think incorporating uh, reflections on the changed reality. There was no real social media to speak of in today's sense in 2004, 2005. Yeah. Uh, there, the Muslims weren't championing the LGBTQ, LGBTQI uh, movement, like many are now. That, that would have been people would have thought you had lost your mind. And not just make any value judgments, good, bad, or ugly, but to just say that didn't exist. And the fact that it does now for so many Muslims, especially young Muslims, you know, they're the kind of reflexive answers now that you'll hear from young Muslims, why, why shouldn't people be able to love who they wish 
they want to love. And you, you, and you know that a lot's going on. Muslims didn't talk like that in 2005. And so again, not trying to make any value judgments, but to address what has happened in the interim to lead to, to that sort of uh, talk. And, you know, uh, adjust, addressing how we as Muslims uh, see the whole idea of justice and how that works to, to help secularize the religion. Mm. So those kind of things. Alhamdulillah, I'm looking forward to uh, reading it. And with that, everybody, this has been another episode of Faith in Fine Print with our special guest, Imam Zaid Shakir. Definitely check him out. This is your host, Nihal Khan, signing off. <laughs>